Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. The Futures and Foresight community comprises a remarkable and diverse group of individuals who span academic, commercial and social interests. At FuturePod, we seek to honour and learn from the wisdom of those who have established and developed our field, to connect and support the practice of those who work in this space, and, most importantly, to give pathways and inspiration to those who wish to join us in creating humane and better futures for ourselves and those who come after us. Jose Ramos is originally from California, of Mexican ancestry. Born in Oakland, he grew up in a very multicultural suburb in Los Angeles, and there he completed a Bachelor of Arts in Comparative Literature. After then living in Japan and Taiwan, where he studied Japanese and Mandarin, he moved to Melbourne, where he pursued a Master's degree in Strategic Foresight, where he became a researcher with the Australian Foresight Institute, and that's where I met Jose. Following his interest in furthering social and ecological justice, he co-founded the Melbourne Social Forum, which is a localised version of the World Social Forum. This then led him into PhD work with and documenting the many communities and people articulating alternative globalisations. That dissertation won Queensland University of Technology's Best Doctoral Thesis Award. Since then, he has lived a hybrid work life. He's worked as a researcher with a CRC centre. He has carried on the role of senior consulting editor for the Journal of Future Studies, one of the journals in our field. And he has taught and lectured on future studies, public policy and social innovation at a number of universities around the world. Jose writes broadly on a variety of topics spanning economic, cultural and political change. And he has over 50 publications in a variety of journals, magazines and books. His current focus is strategy and advocacy for socially ecological just futures, the governance of the commons, anticipatory experimentation, and, and not least, mutant futures. So, Jose, welcome to FuturePod. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So, Jose, the first question which we start people with is, how did Jose become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Well, I, I guess there's a couple of different angles there. One is, I guess maybe I'll just talk from the, the earlier bits. So, obviously an interest in the future from an early age. Read science fiction, like many of my peers. Ran across a book called Neuromancer by William Gibson. I think I was 18 or 19 at the time. Just pretty much blew my mind. And uh, and then just, you know, started reading bits and pieces and... In my early 20s, I was writing fiction, and uh, I was writing science fiction, and I had a bunch of friends who were also writing fiction as well. It wasn't all science fiction, you know, we were lots of different types of stuff, and we, you know, we we read beat poetry, and we, and I got a really, you know, really interesting broad education through, you know, my bachelor at UCI in comparative literature. So, and I think there was always this kind of seed from an early age that, that I kind of saw our world as a social construct and that somehow that could be rewritten. That instead of a manifest destiny, there was nothing really manifest but what we make it. Now, I know that's a little glib, but I think that was one of these little sort of 
elements that kind of sat there. And, you know, in your 20s, they sit there without knowing what they are, Yeah. really. Yeah. But where it really sort of picked up pace was I went on a real sort of deep personal journey of exploration. I, I was living in Japan, and I had a breakup with my Japanese girlfriend at the time. And, um, and I took this very low-budget backpacking trip through Europe, and I really just you know, leaned into exploring what my, my personal future was all about. And I ended up, um, just having these really lovely insights through that journey. You know, I, I had a guitar in one hand, you can just sort of picture my guitar in one hand, backpack and, um, a little tent, all really quite modest. I was living a pretty, pretty, you know, austere life. And I, uh, would journal. Through my 20s, I actually journaled every day, fairly religiously. Actually, I shouldn't say fairly religiously. I journaled every day in my 20s. My journaling was very, very disciplined. But what I did with my journaling didn't necessarily... I could take it anywhere I want. I gave myself the freedom to go where I wanted to go. So a lot of that journaling led to a lot of reflection about my life, my feelings, what was important. And one of those insights that I had... A lot of insights was about the future. So I remember being in a camp, in a um, you know I had my tent set up just outside of Gibraltar in the south of Spain, and uh, I remember really vividly the people in the camp because there were a lot of I don't know how you say it, but they're people from Gibraltar, Gibraltese, and they were fascinating people because they didn't speak Spanish or English, they actually spoke Spanglish, and they looked different too. They wore earrings, little kids, the boys. They look like pirates, you know, if you didn't know otherwise. And I remember actually having a voice say, study the future. So it was a moment of intuition. And I wrote it down in my diary, in my journal. It stuck with me. So it was one of those, and I had been asking myself for probably a good year, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So, you know, I packed that little piece into my, my journal, into my memory. And when I returned back to uh, Los Angeles, to I was staying with my, well, my mom for a little bit, then my dad. Um, I said, okay, I'm actually gonna, I'm actually gonna follow up on this. I'm gonna look for a place where you can study the future. And it being a pre-Google society, or even a pre-Yahoo search society, I started calling up universities. I said, does anyone there study the future? Usually, I'd just get kind of this silence or, you know, that sounds kind of odd. No, we don't study the future here. We're a serious university. <laughs> <laughs> but I finally uh, ran across um, University of California. No, not University of California. It was um, uh, Monterey, Monterey State, which um, has a big global studies program. They also have this kind of adjunct relationship with the U.S. military where they teach languages and sort of thing. And one of the people there said, yeah, we know, we know where someone does this, you know, University of Hawaii. So the next thing you know, it, I was on the phone with Jim Dater. I said, oh, you, you have a program, you study the future. And, you know, he had this very big authoritative voice, you know, and do you know, have you done any social theory? <laughs> you know, 
And I said, I read a bit of Marx and a bit of this and a bit of that. I felt very like, I don't know. He said, well, we're the best program around. We're much better than the Houston program. (laughs) (laughs) I said, oh, okay, great. All right. In the back of my mind, I was like, thanks for telling me about that Houston program. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, we all love, we all love Jim. So then at that time, I didn't have any money to study in a master's degree. So I, um, I also had to think about, well, you know, what's, you know, how am I going to plan my life? And one of those little things that came out in my, my vision quest, backpacking, was um, I really wanted to study Chinese. And I wanted to live in a Chinese environment where I could kind of imbibe the culture. And so I started trying to figure out what that meant. So I actually, essentially from there, I made a plan. I was going to move to Taiwan and I was going to teach a bit of English and save money and study Chinese and save money for this degree in future studies. It was, yeah, it was, it was a plan. It was a plan. It was an actual plan. And, and I was going to do it over a year's time. I remember, well, I carried out the plan. I, I implemented the plan. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's other friends that have crazier plans, by the way. <laughs> this was not the craziest plan you've ever heard. But I moved to Taiwan, found a job, found a bushiban where I studied, started studying Chinese and, um, and all that. And I found it really hard to save money. You know, when you move to another country, you, um, you spend money to get there and all that stuff. And I remember after a year feeling quite despondent that I didn't have enough money for this degree mm. that I wanted to do. I don't think I had... Maybe I had applied by that time, and someone accepted me, and I didn't have the money. I, I don't. I don't remember the details. But I do remember crying, actually, because I was so distraught that you know, the future wasn't going to happen. The future didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess that was that was a good moment because I I sort of said, okay, well, I just maybe I got to stay here for a little longer, really save money this time. <laughs> so um, it's good to have these memories, actually. I enjoy these memories. So I stayed another year. And I think also by that time, I, I, I had I started playing in a band. I was playing bass, doing some singing. And I already, so I had kind of like a social network. So staying another year wasn't, you know. And then by the time, you know, you realize very quickly, I'm not going to pick up Chinese in a year. You know, that's another kind of absurdity. So, um, so yeah, let's stick around. So, so then that led me to two things. After about half a year, so now a year and a half into Taiwan, I was playing at a concert. I met my, what would be my future wife. So we were playing at this kind of gathering of bands in the south of Taiwan called Spring Scream. Band members um, had access to toilets. That was one of our privileges. And guess who was looking for a toilet? That's where you met Dee. Yeah, she's, well, we, we, we chatted a little bit. <laughs> and then she asked me for the toilet. <laughs> Or it was, she was asked ask me for a light. I can't remember exactly. But we started chatting there. And we started dating. Um, she lived in uh, Taichung, in central Taiwan. I lived in the north, Taipei. I, we'd commute back and forth, you know, to see each other. It was really lovely. And we fell in love. So then, pursuing my interest in future studies, another part of the story, I emailed uh, Peter Bishop. And I said, hey, do you know anyone here? Because I'd already been in contact with Peter. Because I was already planning to do the program in Houston, the plan was to do the summer program, mm. the intensive, and then live in Taiwan. And he said, I don't know, but I think Tony Stevenson might know. He gave me Tony Stevenson's contact. And Tony Stevenson gave me Sahel's, no, Guohua. 
Chen Guohua's contact, and I had a correspondence with Chen, uh, Professor Chen, and lo and behold, I was about about a 30, 35 minute train ride from Tonkang University, where I lived. So I went up there, Guohua was there, so was Sahel, and I met them both there in 1999, and then we started chatting, and yeah, Sahel and Guohua encouraged me to write a paper just from that early stage. Wow. To write a paper on the future of Taiwan. I said, I, I think I said I had been thinking about the future of Taiwan or something like that. And, uh, and I wrote a paper. I wrote it on an Olivetti, on my Olivetti, you know, white out and all. Yep. It was a really bad paper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the kind of encouragement I got from them yeah. was pretty amazing, actually. The kind of openness. And you must be getting openness. excited at this point because now you're meeting people who do this. Yeah, yeah. I was totally excited. Totally excited. So so that was my entry point, mm. really. I, I went back. I think Sahel told me he was coming back. I went back. He introduced me to CLA. I ended up going to Houston for a summer. And then Dee had to go back to Melbourne. And she invited me to come here. And then I said, ah, let's do this. So give it a try. Right. Um, or as she would say, throw it in the fire and see if it explodes. <laughs> um, and it exploded. So that's how I ended up in Melbourne. And that's how I ended up. Um, so I did that, that one summer with Peter Bishop, with um, Wendy Schultz, and with Oliver Markley. And then I ended up in Melbourne. And then I was like, how am I going to continue to do this? And then, so oh, there's this program in Melbourne. And then I talked to Richard Slaughter about continuing and seeing if they'd accept my classes and my credits from Houston and they were flexible just kind of went from there so yeah wow hmm and we finished up in the classroom together and then we ended up in the classroom <laughs> together <laughs> and the rest is history and the rest is history yeah. <laughs> all the future yeah 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 Second question, can you talk about an approach to foresight that you, you found very useful and also will be of interest to the listeners? Well, probably in general, what I would say is, this is the way I would put it. If I were the future, I would be telling all of us down here on Earth that we need to experiment and experiment boldly and experiment in a way that's going to really plant the seeds of a new, just, sustainable future. And so the way that I have come to see the methods that I like and that I, that I think need to be pursued is from that angle. So how do we bring a piece of the future into the present through experimentation? Um, experiments have really good value because they're scalable. You can do something small. You don't have to fuck a lot of things up. Uh, the Great Leap Forward in China, where they, Mao decided everyone's going to melt down their iron to turn into steel, then no one has anything to cook with. Yep, that worked well. Yeah, that worked really well. So I think experiments are a great way to test. The other thing is that if we can develop um, robust, wise visions of change, then we can link experiments to that. We can come up with ideas. And we can say, okay, well, based on that vision, how do we take that vision and bring it into the present through something small? Could you maybe explain or use an example of one that you've worked through with a group and just sort of show that process? Okay. I mean, from a policy, in, in the policy space, Finland has one of the most sort of robust approaches to experimenting with policy. So the idea for 
universal basic income has been running around for quite a while. Um, in Finland, they decided to turn it into a study. Mm-hmm. And so they had a small-scale program. I think it was targeted at a number of communities where they ran it. At first, they brought together the experts to kind of go, what does this actually mean? What would an experiment look like? Um, and then they do kind of like a first pass, first, you know, first, and then they review it. And then they kind of tighten the screws a bit and they go, now we really want to understand what's going on. They tweak the experiment a little bit and they begin to do more quantitative research. So I think, I think from a policy point of view, there are a number of countries that you could sort of single out. You could say they're actually taking something quite interesting and they're putting it through a rigorous policy experimentation process. Mm-hmm. I think in the area of, well, in the corporate domain, one of the examples that I heard about from, um, I think his name is Rene Roebuck? Rene. Yeah, Rene. Yep. Yeah. And he talked about um, DHS. You know, DHS had a problem with uh, finding a company that was going to do an electric car the way that they wanted an electric car to be done for their fleet. So much trouble that DHS just kind of said, well, why don't we just create a electric car making experiment? And they began to do a small scale version for their fleet and then refine. And then all of a sudden is, well, we can actually do this. Right. And now they're producing their own electric cars for their fleet. And they're now selling their electric cars to other companies. It started out as an experiment. It started out something very small. An example of something that I've done recently is with a with a advocacy group here in Melbourne, and they do advocacy around um, land speculation. The price of housing in Melbourne is a is a catastrophe for millennials and and other people trying to get into the market. So they're sort of dealing in that area. And so we did a CLA process, which is causal layered analysis for those people who don't know what CLA means. Causal layered analysis is a way of reframing an issue and creating a new perspective on an issue. So you always have to start with, I guess there's a few steps that I would sort of talk about. First, it's to unlearn the future. There's going to be a used future that is already in our minds. So we already have a sense of what the future is. Oftentimes it's a used future. It's Hmm. a future that we got from somewhere or it's from somewhere in the past, but it's not actually serving us in our present context. So unlearning is so so important. So how do you do unlearning? First, you got to look at some of the empirical data around change. Look at the trends. Look at some of the emerging issues. Look at some of the weak signals. That's all. That's that's going to challenge our sense of the future. Hmm. Having unlearned a bit of the future, it's not it's not possible to fully unlearn the future. So we couldn't function as a human being. But having unlearned some of it, then. The next step is, okay, well, let's create a vision based on our, our new, deeper understanding. And then from that vision, create some ideas. What are some ideas for what we might be able to do? And then from the ideas, create some real-world experiments. Right. And then from the real-world experiments, evaluate the experiments. Yep. You can scale them up. You can get rid of them. You can change them. You can do a whole number of things with experiments. So with this um, advocacy group, Having unlearned a bit of a bit of the future, 
They then created a vision for how they can communicate their particular solution. Because one of the issues that they've had is communicating. You know, how do we communicate this, this policy idea to more people? And then they came up with a number of, of ideas for how they might do that communication. One of them was a booklet that would allow people who are not necessarily experts, but who had a lot of solidarity or who were volunteering to be able to communicate or a way for people with particular problems with respect to land speculation to come to them and kind of be consulted too. So there are just different ways of engage, engaging. And so the next stage for them is how do you turn this into a real world, world experiment? And they're working through that right now. So that's just a little yep. example. And I imagine that really the future's, the future's element really is the, is the notion of unlearning or, or just getting past the existing patterns. And yeah. then you as a facilitator would then possibly be able to introduce provocative ideas, emerging challenges that really push them to say the status quo is not going to work. We need to come up with something fresh and new. Yeah. That organization are like ducks to water. They just love it. They love it all. And so that's not a, that's not an issue. Mess with their head, please. Yep. More, more, yeah. again, again. For some organizations, their the scope by which they want to see the world is much more narrow. So one organization I worked in is for the government. They only wanted to know the probable future. Just tell us the probable future. We were kind of saying, but other futures could happen too. But because government is so risk-averse, they want to leverage any interventions that they make with the highest probability. So that's fair enough. So there's different contexts and navigating those is tricky. So Jose, what are you sense making and what are you seeing emerge now and particularly going into the, the possible futures as you, as you kind of just look at the world in general? Well... I mean, I think the first thing that has to be said is that notion of acceleration, that my feeling is that change feels like it's speeding up. Now, I don't think that's true, but I think it's an experience. And I think perhaps part of the reason for it is that we're, we're experience, experiencing the, the crushing heaviness of the crises that we feel that we that we see before us we see the great you know the great barrier reef dying we see the clock ticking on parts per million carbon in the atmosphere and we see a lot of other issues so i think that's part of that sense of acceleration it's almost like a compression that what we had 30 years to work out, now we have five or seven. Yeah. Almost like a time loss, a sort of urgency, but also a helplessness. It could be helplessness, and it could be, yeah, yeah, it could be helplessness. It could be urgency. It could simply be outrage or anger. And so what I'm experiencing on social media is maybe the amplification of the inner world, because that's 
it's it's not that we're seeing the future. It's that we're seeing signs of possible futures, but what we're really seeing is the amplification of the inner world. So I think that 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 to me is a big part of what we have to deal with, especially living living in the belly of social media. How do we navigate our collective mind spaces in ways in which we're going to be able to make good decisions, find good directions? I mean, on one hand, I feel, you know, I was just at a truck stop and I, I did a call on a truck stop and there was KFC and McDonald's and all the other ones and just, just felt like absolutely nothing has changed. Absolutely nothing. And then on the other hand, you know, I look, you know, and I read an article and Australia is going to be like 30% renewable in no time. And California's already mandated 100% renewable energy. And there's all these wonderful social uh, changes afoot here and there. So, so I think one of the biggest challenges we have to face is how do we sort out our own ways of feeling through and communicating that to others in a way that's going to inspire and connect. So I guess one of the things that, one of the ways that I see the future is as a commons. There's a academic writer named David Held, and he essentially says that all of us in every country, he calls us communities of faith. We all basically live in the same future. And I think that that concept is fundamental to being able to articulate this personal navigation that we need to do. I think what happens is when people are faced with crises, we're reptiles, you know, we have an amygdala response. And a lot of us are saying, that's right, okay, time to, you know, time to stock up on the goods, become a prepper, the shit's going to go down. And I think we have to navigate what it means to be human, what it means to be human at the level of that very base level, the level of a, a homo technicus, someone who creates technology that has its many contradictions. And and navigate who we are in a cosmic sense. And when we understand that we're part of communities of fate, as David Held would say, then there is no longer a place to squirrel away your nuts while everyone else has to deal with those problems. Those are their problems. So what's happened is we've been implicated into various commons. Go back 500 years ago and we just took the atmosphere for granted. Of course we can breathe oxygen. Of course the climate is going to be fine. It goes through seasons. Right? We've just we've just had 10,000 years of the Holocene. Really good fucking weather. And now the scientists are telling us actually don't take that Holocene for granted because it's going to change. So we're now implicated into a commons 
that commons is the atmosphere. And it's that implication that pulls people out. Well, it can do both things. If we're just at that base level, it's, I'm going to squirrel away my nuts, to hell with you all. But the other inclination is, because we're all in this together, we have to work together. That's the only way. So oftentimes I talk about kind of like a planetary classroom, right? Different stages of time provide like a classroom. And then you stick humanity in that classroom and you go, today's lesson is, right? And sometimes that student is just not going to learn. They're too busy passing notes to each other. Um, maybe the metaphor of the classroom is wrong too, because you know the industrial education model has its problems. But let's just say there's a lesson. And the classroom can be configured in any way. It can be group work. It can be an action learning project. It can be building something right together, whatever. But at the moment, the way I would frame it is, there's a planetary classroom. Humanity's in it. What are those lessons? And so I kind of like to see, I kind of like to see the challenges that we're experiencing as part of an evolutionary step. That actually, this is our learning opportunity. What is the planet teaching us? Mm. The planet's teaching us some really cool things. It's teaching us that our relationship to technology is quite fraught. It's quite unconscious. And we need to grow up. We can't just crank out the next widget without thinking about its consequences. So lesson one. Lesson two, got to learn to cooperate and get past this race thing and get past this idea of difference because we just do not have, we're not going to survive mm. with that level of thinking and nuclear bombs. It's not going to happen. We've got to see each other, see each other as brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters on a planet that we share. Another lesson is, whoa, we really can impact the planet and how it operates. Wow, we didn't think we could do that. How do we find some kind of what um, I think Barbara Max Hubbard talked about is co-evolution or Dwayne Elgin, so many people that have talked about this, co-evolution. Hmm. How do we actually as a species, learn to coexist with the myriad other species and find some kind of regulatory, homeostatic, dynamic relationship in the world that we live in, instead of just saying, well, we're just going to have to find another planet. You know, it's really disappointing when you get that response from billionaires. We're just got to find another planet. And so, I guess, too, for you, just, just, just to, to go back to your earlier point, there's there's this notion of ex of experimentation because we don't know how to do this now because we haven't had to do it before, but now yeah. we have to do it. So it's only going to be an experimental process from here. Right. And that's probably why that first metaphor of the classroom is the used future and why a different view of what learning means is the new future, is that we really have to rethink what does it mean to learn in this planetary era can we create a learning environment that fosters experimentation? Can we do that within our governments? Can we do that within our companies? Can we do that within our schools? 
can we foster this 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 bold creativity and ability to problem solve with each other yeah and it's in some ways i know it seems but the fact that nobody knows what to do is actually a tremendous opportunity for everybody to simply say well i've got an idea i agree and there's some answers but we don't know how to pull it all together i mean take for instance the the nonsense which is the current state of geopolitics you know trump spouting out tweets and king jung il you know doing photo ops i mean it's just absolutely and kind of just pathetic right but then there's a new capacity emerging capacity for global cooperation Bio biologists use the term stigmerging to describe the way that ants leave pheromone trails for other ants to follow we've done that with wikipedia at a global level to me i, I kind of see us in a sense at the beginning of something that we've never been before and so we just see little signs of it, little examples, weak signals. And those are the weak signals that kind of show us the way. Little pheromone trails. Pheromone trails, yeah. Where, you know, if... <laughs> and, I, and this is what, you know, uh, Paul Hawken talked about, the global autoimmune response. He said, for any problem, we have a global autoimmune response to that problem. You have millions of people that are actually, let's, do, let's deal with this. And I think... We're now at the stage, technologically, where we can build collaborative processes that are able to solve real problems for each other. And one of the ideas I talk about is cosmolocalization, which is basically the idea that at the cosmic level, we have a global design commons. We have people contributing open source ideas from all over the world. And a lot of those ideas can be localized. They can be localized through new communities. And there's lots of examples of that happening. So we can essentially couple global solidarity system of design and articulate the right to design for any person to take from the global commons of design of open source. And we have the capacity in all our localities to instantiate that, to make those things happen, to adapt those things, again, as experiments. How do you talk to a non-Foresight person about Foresight and Futures? Oh, boy. Um, I mean, this is a f challenging and fraught area for me because I think... I have a standard response, and then I have my, this is what I would like to tell people response. And so there's an element of, of course, it does depend on who you're talking to. What I would like to say, and maybe something that needs to be worked on with me, in me, is future studies or strategic foresight is about ensuring our long-term well-being as a society and as a global community that's probably what i would that's what i want to say to people that's not what i say to people what i say to people is it's okay there's different again again now there's you know it's fractioning 
So, so if I sense skepticism, and sometimes we just project it, right? Then the person might not be skeptical at all, but you're projecting. So what I'll say is strategic foresight is a, a way of helping organizations to think about the critical changes that are happening in that organization's operating environment. There might be things that are going to impact that organization that they don't know about and they need to prepare for. So that's kind of like your standard org response. And it's a very credible response, but it just doesn't inspire me very much, to be honest. It's very useful, and it's probably what organizations with their what-do-we-do-today hat on want to hear. You know, we want our strategies to work. And foresight or futures is going to show us our blind spots. That's a really solid thing. But at the most, the aspirational heart Jose wants to say futures and foresight is a way of bringing our preferred futures into the present through experiments that can scale and experiments that are going to ensure or help us navigate the big challenges that we have and to help us create the futures of well-being. Why don't other. you say that, Jose? I do say that, but I'm always... I am always looking for, it has to do with the listening as well. The listening does matter. And so at, at a certain point, I did recognize that, that that org response was a used elevator pitch and that it was time to create a new one. So that new one is my Mutant Futures elevator pitch that I've been using for several years now that reflected on past one and and sometimes i flip the past one because it just feels hmm. comfortable or the person listening does not have time to hear about how future studies is so wonderful and it's going to help ensure a good society okay. so to me the underlying thing that that sits underneath that and sits sits underneath my ambivalence is um worldviews that people fundamentally have different metaphors for the future, have, fun, have fundamentally different ways of seeing the future. There's a big difference between Bucky Fuller's Spaceship Earth and Make America Great Again. There's a chasm. And to me, the biggest challenge in what we're doing is being able to communicate what we do in a way that implicates where everyone can see yeah, we're part of this. We're part of this future thing. Like David held, you know, communities of fate. How are we communities of fate? I'm not sure the language exists within futures or foresight per se, because as practitioners, we tend to want to talk about the field. And that's a weakness. It's important. And if you're going to create a field, you got to talk about a field. You got to talk about a journal. The journals anchor the knowledge. The universities teach the thing. But if we're actually going to show people how they're implicated into the future that another person coexists in, then we need new language and new metaphors. I guess my question is, how do we do that? How do we, how do we get outside of this? And 
you know, with all due respect to field building, how do we talk about the future in a way where someone from the Make America Great Again crowd goes, yeah, that's right. We need the climate in the future. You know, we need to save climate. Or where someone else from, the, you know, let's say from a, from a different point of view says, yeah, actually, we can't just ignore the needs of people who are poor, that we're living in that same future as they are. And I guess that's why I like to use the language of the commons. That to me is, it's at the risk of ending up in a discourse that doesn't communicate more broadly. What I would say is, yeah, we need a whole new sort of question and approach. Can you talk about mutant futures? Okay. Over the last 10 years, there's been an emerging group of people from around the world who have essentially been experimenting at the intersection between one thing and another, between something and futures. So this could be things like design, thinking. It could be gaming, gamification. It could be the development of immersive experiences like virtual reality. It could be theater. It could be the production of performances. So many different areas. So a mutant futurist is somebody who's working at the intersection between one field and another field, one space and another space, between futures and something else. But more so, a mutant futurist is somebody who's experimenting with who they are, with themselves. And that's because all of us have what might be called dominant selves. Selves that essentially create a invisible boundary around what they allow us to do and be in the world. So to do something new, to create a new hybrid practice, normally requires engaging with or activating or discovering parts of ourselves that we hadn't normally done with, engaged with, activated discover. And sometimes, and this is the really important point, sometimes it's the future that is calling forth these new selves in us. Because the, the nature of the mutation, because obviously if you're a mutant futurist, then you're actually in the process of mutating. or and, and this can be the mutation of you or the mutation of what your work is. Yeah. And this is, this is uh, a relational dynamic. Earlier, I said, if I was a future, I would be asking or saying, I want you to experiment. I want you to try something new. But in the context of, in the context of these great transitions that we're going, what are the great transitions that we really care about? For some people, it's the end of patriarchy and the development of a new type of relationship between man and woman. For other people, it's an energy transition, that we have a climate crisis, that we need to keep fossil fuels in the ground, and that we need a, new, a, new, a whole new approach to energy. For others, it's the end of racism, the beginning of something else. For each of us, we have great transitions that we care deeply about. What is that future saying it wants from us in the present? Or another way to put it, if 
yourself or yourselves were a garden. You have some big plants. Those are your dominant cells. You have some little seedlings. And those are your emerging cells. You've got some plants in the corner that are dying. Those are the ones that, the cells that you've neglected. You've got weeds, which you consider not part of yourself at all. They need to be pulled out. And when I ask this question to people, sometimes they say, I need more weeds. And what they're saying is, I need the wild. I need to bring in the wild that I have been domesticated and tamed to death. And other people say, um, some of my seedlings need to grow. I need to water my seedlings. Mm. What are those seedlings? Open-heartedness, an open heart towards other people. Other people say different things. So the question of mutant futures is, you can think of it as a triangle, if you want to imagine a triangle. One part of the triangle is who we are. What is our narrative for ourselves? And if we've had these selves that have governed who we are, right, maybe we can just kind of loosen the ground of that garden a little bit to let some new things grow, right? On the other side, we've got the future. What part of these transformations or transitions do we want to participate in? What mutation do we want to be part of? All right. So let's shrink ourselves down a little bit. Right. Things only happen when a number of people come together to mm. do them. So we need to participate with other people. What does that actually mean? And what is that saying about who we are, about our garden? And then the third part of that triangle is what is our method or strategy? What is the how? And the how is what I talked about right at the beginning. Right? Well, I combine this and I combine that. I do this and I do that. The how is fundamental. Because without the how, you don't get to change. But without the self, there is no how. You've got to have that part of you that wants to try something new. I'm going to combine this. I'm going to combine that. Just like you're combining foresight and podcasts. That's mutant futures. But there's something about the transformed or transitioned future that is informing who you are. Mm. And there's something about who you are that's informing the method that you're taking. So that's the relationship. So it's really the, the notion of mutant futures and mutant futurist is, one, it's playful. It's a provocation to think differently about the future. But it's a space for us to think about how are our emerging selves going in the context of these great transformations and transitions that we're experiencing. And then that moves us beyond just another career, just another, oh, I'm combining this and that. Who are we in the world? That's what I want to know. Who are we in the world? And who are we in participating in the transformation of our world? And it's not the selves as they are configured today. No, in the past. It can't be. It can't be. Yeah. I think it was um, uh, Dan Gilbert who talked about our relationship to ourself. When, when someone reminds us of something we did in the past, we often have a kindly kind of slightly embarrassed, but yeah, that's what I thought then. In other words, the self that looks back at previous selves does so kind of kindly, but also as, as the superior. And yet that self will in, will in turn be looked back on from the future again as a kind of um, partial 
notion, this notion of being kind, but also don't just get hung up on what you currently think now. Mm. Just, just be kind. You're probably wrong, but that's okay. And you'll be doing something different anyway. So thanks, Jose, for taking your time to explore your ideas with the FuturePod community. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure, and I, I hope you've enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And thanks. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.